Good evening. Uh, we have some more uh, seats in the front. There are some seats here. So, one more sofa. However, he could be holding that for someone. And we're going to bring in some more. We're going to go in there. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I must tell you, this is the best problem to have. We have to bring in more chairs and open the windows and all of that. So this is really a wonderful time and a wonderful uh, edition of our Shapiro Lecture Series at the Pratt Library. This lecture series, similar to the Eddie and Sylvia Brown Lecture Series has been made possible by a generous bequest from Mrs. Gloria Shapiro and her family. And we've been able to bring with that bequest uh, great authors, and tonight is another occasion. Now, there's another reason why this evening is so special. It gives me an opportunity to welcome some of you to the Pratt Library that haven't been here before, to welcome others back, and to reintroduce some of you to what we've been doing and what's been going on here. As you know, and you might know, and I think half of the people, if not three-quarters of the people in this room, know that Ellen Cassidy and her family are true friends of this library. Her mother-in-law, and I'm reading this directly from here, is the amazing Lois Feinblatt. <laughs> I said, tonight's author, Ellen Cassidy, has the great fortune of having a mother-in-law who is the amazing Lois Feinblatt. Her husband's pretty good, too. <laughs> and uh, many of you know that after a very active career, uh, Lois is still working as a counselor, and there are many days that I'm sure a lot of us wish we had her stamina and also her grace. So thank you, Lois, very much. Uh, the family has been generously supporting the library for more than 25 years, and for that we couldn't give you enough thanks and show you our appreciation. Uh, just to let you know that many of our author events are supported not by public funds, but by patrons and donors like many of you in this room, and we would not be able to have such wonderful authors like Madeline Albright, Chris Matthews, Jim Lair, though we'd like to have him back soon. Uh, at the time when he came, he said he wouldn't do another debate, so we'd like to have him come back. And Tavis Smiley. In fact, we have definitely become one of the IT destinations uh, in Baltimore for author events. So you can grab a copy of our newsletter, Compass. You can go to our website, prattlibrary.org. You can follow us on Twitter. We are the sixth most influential library in the world on Twitter. And I'm told that's a very good thing. And you will also get a very, we're on Facebook, we're on interest, 
all that. Uh, we also have some exciting authors to come. Very shortly, we will have MSNBC's Chris Hayes, uh, t- award-winning author Terry McMillan, Congressman John Lewis will be back to talk about his career, and we're really looking forward to having Sur- Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor here. So we hope that's February 28th, so that should be something. So it's exciting. So, Ms. Cassidy, we're, you're in good company, and we feel that we're in good company with you. So I understand that you come to us this evening from Tacoma Park, uh, I also understand that in Maryland, that's sometimes considered an independent state itself. <laughs> uh, Ms. Cassidy's articles, essays, translations have appeared in Hadassah, The Forward, The Jewish Telegraphic uh, Agency, and other pu- publications. She's a former columnist for the Philadelphia Daily News and worked as a speechwriter in the Clinton administration. So you might get a few questions about that. <laughs> Most excitingly, though, she's just been awarded the 2012 Translation Prize by the National Yiddish Book Center with her colleague, Aaron Topp. And that's a wonderful award. So I think you can clap for that. Now, over the past 10 years, Ms. Cassidy has been engaged in a fascinating journey into Lithuania's past and present, and her book, We Are Here, Memories of the Lithuanian Holocaust, has just been published by the University of Nebraska Press. So please join me in welcoming Ms. Ellen Cassidy. Thanks so much, Carla. Hey, it's really an honor to be here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I spent several years of my childhood here in Baltimore, including the years when I learned how to read. So I remember very well my trips to this building, which were totally magical, right up there with visiting the mummy at the art museum. (laughs) I want to thank Lois so much for sponsoring the gathering tonight and also the Ivy Bookshop for selling books after the talk. And thank you to all of you, so many of you, for coming out tonight. I went to Lithuania looking for answers about my own Jewish family past. But as I set out on my journey to the old world, things began to happen. And very quickly, I realized that my family story was connected to something much bigger. I found myself beginning to explore how a young post-Soviet nation was engaging with its Jewish family story. And over the past 10 years, this exploration has changed my view of the past, changed my view of the future, and changed me. Not only because I came to care deeply about the land of my Jewish forebears, but also because Lithuania's struggle to come to terms with the Jewish past has implications far beyond Lithuania itself. The questions raised here in this small European country matter for South Africa, for Rwanda, For Bosnia and Argentina, they matter for all of us. Questions like these. How do we understand and remember the past, and what do we do with those memories today? What do we expect of ordinary people, bystanders, in extraordinary times? Can we find it in our hearts to empathize with the other? Can we honor the six million without perpetuating the fears and hatreds of the past? My grandfather, the one on the left, the cute one, (laughs) 
came to America from Lithuania in 1911 at the age of 19, escaping the czar's draft. Now, this is my Jewish grandfather on my mother's side. The other side, my father's side, has to do with England, Germany, and Ireland, which is where the name Cassidy comes from, in case you were wondering. <laughs> now, when my mother was alive, I could count on her to keep track of my grandfather and all those who came before. But after she died, I felt my uh, family past beginning to disappear. My mother had used Yiddish, the old uh, Jewish everyday language, only sparingly, sort of like a spice. But after she died, I found myself missing it, and when I learned about a summer institute in Yiddish in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, I was eager to go. Now, mind you, at that point, I barely knew where Lithuania was. I had to get out an atlas to learn that it is the most southern of the three Baltic republics, with Latvia and Estonia on top. It was a republic of the Soviet Union from the end of World War II until 1991, Geographically, it's about four times the size of Maryland, but the population is 3.2 million, which is only a little more than half of Maryland. So it's a tiny place. But one thing I did know was that Lithuania had a notorious Holocaust history. I knew that in 1941, when the German army invaded, the Jews of Lithuania were massacred with a swiftness and thoroughness that was unusual even for that terrible time. I knew that it was the German invaders who issued the orders, but in most cases it was members of the Lithuanian white bands who pulled the trigger. I knew that nearly every Lithuanian town has its pit in the forest not far from the market square, where Jews were assembled, shot, and hastily buried in mass graves. I knew that during the war... In the three major Lithuanian cities, tens of thousands of Jews were confined in ghettos. By the end of the war, only 6% of Lithuania's 240,000 Jews remained alive. One of them was my Uncle Will, the one on the left, the cute one. (laughs) So before leaving for the Vilnius Institute, I went to New York to see Uncle Will, and I brought some street maps that I had downloaded from the Internet. My uh, my uncle was 87 years old, and 60 years had passed since he left Europe, but he could still put his finger on exactly where he lived and where he went to school. But then my uncle did something profoundly uh, different that changed my journey to Lithuania. He took me aside and told me that for the first time, that while he was confined in the ghetto in the Lithuanian city of Sholay, or Shavl, he had been a member of the Jewish ghetto police. I'd known my uncle all my life, and all my life I had treasured heroic images of him in the Holocaust. I knew he had saved two little girls during a roundup. I knew he had carried my uncle Aaron on his back during a death march out of Dachau. But this, being a member of the Jewish ghetto police, this I had never heard. Now, as many of you know, in ghettos all over Europe, Nazi authorities required the Jewish population of a ghetto to create an internal police force with the job of carrying out Nazi orders. So when Jewish workers were needed to build an airfield or manufacture weapons, it was the Jewish police who formed them into columns and kept them in line. And when the authorities demanded 50 or 100 or 1,000 Jews to be marched off to the killing fields, in some ghettos it was the Jewish police who decided who was going to join those ranks and who was going to live and who was going to die. But the Jewish police also helped the ghetto inmates by allocating food and housing. They saved people's lives by subverting Nazi orders, warning people and helping them to escape. So the Jewish ghetto police were controversial back then, 
among the inhabitants of the ghetto, and they've remained controversial ever since. Primo Levi, who is the eloquent survivor of Auschwitz, called them inhabitants of a gray zone where good and evil blur. So as Uncle Will revealed this new information from his past, the picture of the Holocaust that I had grown up with began to break apart. I could feel myself becoming ashamed and agitated. What had Uncle Will done in the ghetto, and what was I to do with this new disturbing disclosure? Should I defend my uncle? Should I condemn him? Should I forgive him? So this was the first thing that changed my journey to Lithuania. The second thing came when I heard back from an official in my uh, hometown of Rokishkis, the shtetl or small town where my ancestors has lived for generations. And she wrote that there was a Gentile man in town named Stepanus who wanted to talk to me. In 1941, as a boy of 17, Stepanus had watched as the Jews of Rokishkis were assembled in a field and marched into the forest to be shot. That knowledge had tormented him all his life. He wanted to tell what he knew. He wanted to speak to a Jew before he died. Would I be that Jew? I have to say I was not eager to be that Jew. And if not for what I had just heard from Uncle Will, I think I might have said no. I might have turned away. But now the ground had shifted, and so I agreed. Yes, I would be that Jew. And so I went off to Lithuania a land where Jewish culture had flowered and a land where Jewish culture had been annihilated. In the mornings at the Yiddish Institute, we studied the uh, Yiddish language and literature in all its glory, which was a machaya. How are you doing with that? Um, <laughs> does anybody know what, what, what the definition of a machaya might be? A pleasure. Right. It's uh, said to be the, the word that describes what happened when women from Brooklyn would, on a broiling hot day, would travel to the beach, and when they finally made it into the water, they would say, oh, I'm a chaya, I'm a chaya. <laughs> in the afternoons, the last Yiddish speakers of Vilna, now in their 80s, walked us through the streets of this beautiful city, once known as Yerushalayim Delita, the Jerusalem of the north, now home to only 2,000 Jews. We saw the Church of St. Casimir. Now, during the Soviet era, this church was turned into a mocking museum of atheism, where both Jewish and Catholic objects were put on display for people to laugh at. What were they thinking? We saw the empty lot where the great synagogue once stood. It was bombed by the Nazis, and after the war, it was bulldozed by the Soviet regime. We saw plaques about the Holocaust and about pre-war Jewish culture in Lithuanian and Yiddish. In the Tolerance Center, which is part of the Jewish Museum, we saw Jewish artifacts that were saved all through the Soviet years by um, curators of um, Lithuanian museums who were very passionate about preserving the Jewish past. And now these objects are proudly on display. I visited the, Jewish, uh, the greenhouse of the Jewish Museum which tells the story of the Holocaust. And then on the other side of town, I visited the KGB Museum, which tells the story of the victims of the Soviet years. And I began to make my way into the complexities of history in this part of the world. I learned that for centuries, Jews and their non-Jewish neighbors coexisted relatively peaceably. Pogroms were rare. On the brink of World War II, Jews made up one-third of the population in Lithuanian cities and about one-half in the small towns. 
But relations between the Jews and their non-Jewish, overwhelmingly Catholic neighbors were never particularly warm. And by the mid-20th century, tensions had been simmering for centuries. That helped lay the groundwork for what happened next. In 1940, Soviet tanks arrived, rolling into Lithuania in what proved to be a futile attempt to prevent a German invasion. In 1941, just weeks before the Germans did invade, the Soviets arrested thousands of Lithuanians and Jews and deported them to Siberia in a way that is reminiscent of the Nazi era in some ways. A knock on the door in the middle of the night, 10 minutes to pack, the whole family ordered out onto the street, into a truck, into a boxcar, a long, dark journey into the north. Some people died on the way to Siberia, and more died when they got there. Then the German tanks rolled into Lithuania, and a multicultural place, known for centuries as a place of relative tolerance, became, as we know, a place of mass murder. Nor did the end of World War II bring peace to Lithuania. The three Baltic nations were incorporated into the Soviet Union and was not an easy transition. A bloody resistance struggle went on for seven years. The deportations began again on a massive scale. This time, tens of thousands of Lithuanians and a few remaining Jews, including one of my uncles, were arrested and sent to Siberia. Between 1940 and 1952, historians say that as much as one-third of the Lithuanian population was lost to massacre, war casualties, deportations, executions, and emigration. And by the time the Soviet Union fell in 1991 and Lithuania became a new independent nation, half a century under two regimes had created a cauldron boiling and bubbling with competing martyrdoms, complex feelings of victimhood, seemingly irreconcilable narratives about the past, stereotypes, resentments, hatreds, quite a challenging situation. But as that cauldron boiled and bubbled, there emerged in Lithuania a small cadre of people, activists, educators, leaders, who began to dedicate themselves to creating a new public discourse. These brave souls, Jews and non-Jews, are working in an often hostile environment to bring the facts of the past out into the open in an attempt to build a more tolerant future. These people educated me, and they inspired me. So let me share with you three snapshots. This is Irena Vesaita, a remarkable woman, a Jewish woman, a tolerance leader, a leader of the Open Society Institute in Lithuania. At the age of 15, Irena went into the Kovno ghetto, alone, without either her mother or her father. After more than two years, non-Jewish Lithuanians managed to smuggle her out to safety. She ended up hiding in the home of the widow of a Lithuanian general from World War I, a woman she came to consider her second mother. And this is how Irena survived. But after the war, this second mother was sent to Siberia by the Soviet regime. So Irena's whole family was killed by the Nazis, and then her second mother was taken from her. Yet out of this terrible suffering, she emerged as a leader of efforts toward mutual understanding. She defines tolerance as a permissive or liberal attitude toward beliefs or practices different from or conflicting with one's own. But she adds another concept to that definition, the non-acceptance of intolerance. The intolerance of intolerance. Not easy concepts. 
As I stepped through doorways in Lithuania, Irena was my guide. The second snapshot. These two Gentile women were employed by the Lithuanian government to design curricula about the Holocaust for Lithuanians of all ages. And they believe passionately that if Lithuania is to mature as a nation, Lithuanians must ask themselves rigorous moral questions about the Holocaust. Now, I often heard Lithuanians say that 1% of Lithuanians had killed Jews. 1% had saved Jews. The other 98% had been bystanders. And so if you add it all up, the score is even which was a calculation I found quite offensive. So I asked these women, how should we judge? How should we judge the bystanders? And I was very struck by their answer. They said, our mission is to ask this question, not to answer it. It's not for Jews that we're doing this, they said, not for international relations. This is for us. Our goal, they said, is to transform ourselves from a society of bystanders, and in some cases worse, into an active civil society. This billboard says, who, if not you, will determine the future of Lithuania? Become socially active. The last snapshot. I talked with Ruta Pushita, a young Gentile woman who directed a traveling exhibit for the Jewish Museum. Her job was to get in a truck and drive to little Lithuanian villages and towns where she would set up a series of panels about seven centuries of Jewish history that people could walk through. And Ruta told me that the word Holocaust was unknown to many of the local people. Most of them had never met a Jew. She showed me the text of the booklet she was writing, and here are the questions she was posing. What do you think of Albert Einstein saying, the world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing? Have you ever been in a situation where someone needed your help and you didn't provide it? If so, why did you behave like others rather than following your conscience? Is there a connection between your answers and the behavior of people during the war? So these are the kinds of questions that Lithuanians are being asked to grapple with. And these are searing questions, tough questions. Finally, and this is the last experience I'm going to describe, my guide and I drove to the very northeast corner of Lithuania, the heartland of my family past, to Rakashkis, where my family tree extends back into the mid-1800s. There I breathed in the summer light of the vast Baltic sky. I saw the ochre-colored wooden houses and the marigolds spilling out into the yards, the fields and barns where my great-grandmother supervised workers on a dairy farm, and the road that is still called Synagogue Street, where my great-grandfather used to pour over the Talmud. And then came the moment I was dreading, the visit with the old man who wanted to speak to a Jew before he died. I'm going to read a little from the book. We pulled up in front of a cottage with a steep tin roof. Stepanus came out, bent and gnarled, with a cane, his face deeply lined and weathered, his wife in a house dress, several silver teeth. He didn't look at me. They got into the car, the old man in front with the driver, the woman in back with my guide and me. He asked the driver to drive slowly through the town. Here, to the right of this flower bed, he said, was the camp. The Jews were driven here. They were told that if they did not give up their valuables, they would be drowned in the pond. After they gave up their valuables, they were driven over this bridge into this field. 
All of these houses and barns were full of Jews. I drove my wagon, he said, loaded with carrots past the camp. I threw carrots over the fence. The guards threatened to kill me. The Jews were driven down the road. The white armband police lined both sides of the road. These were the Lithuanians who collaborated with the Nazis. The white armbands came from the villages and small towns all over this region. You needed a lot of people to guard such a huge crowd of Jews, thousands of Jews. Stepanus began to weep. They took all the people marching, he said, even children and old people. It was all on my eyes, he said. I was watching. We got out of the car. I went into the cottage, the wood stove up to the ceiling, the plaster walls painted bright green. I touched the battered pots, the cucumbers on the table. Finally, we did look at each other. He tapped his chest and looked into my eyes. It was terrible, he said. And I nodded and I shook his hand. So what do we make of all this? I'm going to tell you some of what I've concluded, although for the full story and the full unspooling of the mystery about Uncle Will, you're going to have to read the book. (laughs) I went to Lithuania wanting to learn Yiddish, wanting to imagine myself back into the lives of my ancestors, and wanting to make up my mind about my uncle, the Jewish policeman, and Stepanus, the bystander. I wanted to judge once and for all. But my visit to the old world changed me. When I met Stepanus and other Lithuanians who were engaging so painfully with the past, I lost the urge to sift and to sort and to create neat columns. In listening to this sobbing man, this man who wanted to talk to a Jew not to ask for absolution, but simply to be heard, I came to appreciate that the term bystander encompasses a wide range of behaviors and that it can be hard to judge hard to condemn, especially when we ask ourselves how we might act under similar conditions of terror. Stepanus was not only a bystander. At times, he did more than simply watch. By throwing carrots over the fence into the ghetto, he risked his own safety, his own life. And the experience of watching while other people were assembled to be murdered had clearly inflicted a deep wound. Uncle Will, the policeman, was clearly a victim but also, if not a collaborator, at least some kind of bystander. With his policeman's armband, he stood at the gate, he stood by, feeling powerless to resist, while children and old people were loaded into trucks and driven away into the unknown. As Primo Levi says of the Jewish prisoners who became part of the death machine at Auschwitz, he says, I ask that we meditate on their story with pity and rigor, but that judgment of them be suspended. The guilt, he tells us, lies in the system itself. As for the guilt of such individuals, this is always difficult to evaluate. I know of no human tribunal to which one could delegate the judgment. So during that terrible time in the 20th century, solidarity was often difficult, if not impossible. And even today, for many of us, especially for those who personally lived through those times, it may be difficult or impossible or even inappropriate to move beyond hatred. But for myself, I came to see a different role, an opportunity. As I meditated with pity and rigor on the stories of the two old men, my uncle Will the policeman and Stepanus the bystander, I felt myself challenged to grow, 
to question the black and white categories I had grown up with, to expand my sympathies beyond the boundaries I had been taught as a child. It's not easy to open up to the other, especially in the unique terrain of the Holocaust. I didn't find it easy. It's tempting, as the historian Timothy Snyder has said, He's the author of the new book, Bloodlands, which I highly recommend. As Snyder has said, it's tempting to say, my memory is history and your memory is propaganda. My memory is sacred, your memory is bigotry. My people are good, your people are evil. So in Lithuania, I came to understand that in this moral terrain, the journey itself matters very much. The serious attention we pay, this matters. I will never stop wondering about Uncle Will's actions in the ghetto. I will never stop pondering Stepanus's role in the genocide that killed my people. To ask without expecting ever to be done with the asking, that is the work of a lifetime. The attempt we make to listen and to understand, this I came to feel is where hope lies for Lithuania, for Eastern Europe, for other countries that are struggling to emerge from conflict, for all of us. Anti-Semitism is by no means absent in Lithuania today. I saw swastikas, and my aim tonight is certainly not to say nice things about the Lithuanian government. There's plenty to criticize, and indeed, people have been standing up both inside and outside of Lithuania to protest how Lithuania is doing a poor job of bringing former Nazi collaborators to justice. People have been standing up to protest that in Lithuania, as in uh, other places in Eastern Europe, that as the call has arisen for greater recognition of Stalin's crime, that, ca that call often seems bound up with an attempt to deny or diminish or distort Hitler's crimes. This spring, Lithuanian nationalists marched down the main boulevard in Vilnius, and among the marchers were neo-Nazis. So what did the advocates of tolerance in Lithuania do? The director of the Jewish Museum invited the leaders of that march to the Tolerance Center for a tour, and they came. And there was also an alternative march, complete with families and balloons and music. Last month, a commemoration ceremony was held for the Jews of the Vilna Ghetto. Dozens of Lithuanians came forward to read out the names, the surnames, and the professions of those who perished one by one. One woman, one of the coordinators, said, we don't even know what these names sound like. This is our history. The city's cultural memory without these people has gaps, holes, and you feel them. This moment for us as a city community is very important. Recently, the Lithuanian government announced that it had allocated $50 million in restitution funds to compensate Lithuania's small Jewish community for property seized during the Nazi and Soviet eras. So over the next uh, decade, this money will be allocated to fund Jewish educational, religious, scientific, cultural, and social welfare projects. Now, needless to say, there can never be full compensation for the suffering endured by Lithuania's Jewry. The restitution initiative is symbolic, underscoring Lithuania's moral burden. But it is also practical, as it will actually support Jewish life. It's a step, one small step on a difficult road. And in a country without a robust democratic tradition, change is slow. Actually, come to think of it, even in a country with a robust democratic <laughs> tradition, it can be slow. So I can't tell you whether, on balance, Lithuania is moving forward toward the tolerance that characterized this country over the centuries, or backward 
toward the prejudice that exploded into genocide 60 years ago? Maybe both. I'm, learning for, uh, I'm looking forward to learning more when I go to Lithuania in February, which is when my book is being translated and published in Lithuanian. This graffiti in Vilnius says, first, up with a white Lithuania. And that's been crossed out, and in its place someone has written, up with a world without racism. To conclude, at the graduation ceremony at the Vilnius Yiddish Institute, two tiny women in their 80s, former ghetto inmates, came forward and led us in singing the partisan hymn that was composed in the Vilna ghetto in 1943. The song's refrain, Mil Zein and Do, We Are Here, always used to strike me as sad and even pathetic because so many of those who had sung that song in the ghetto had died and so few had survived that We Are Not Here would be more accurate. But as I stood up to sing, the song sounded different to me because spinning through my head were the images of brave people, flawed people, Jews and non-Jews, searching for a way forward out of the past. My uncle Will, revealing his complex secret after a silence of 60 years. Irena Vesaita, rising out of a grim personal history to call for love and understanding. The two educators, seeking to transform a country of bystanders into an active civil society. Ruta Pushita, the young woman at the Jewish Museum, traveling from village to village to pose tough moral questions. Stepanus, the haunted old man in Rakishkis, with his yearning to bear witness. And let's add those tolerance marchers from this spring, too, even though they look kind of weird. Now, to me, the song seems to ask all of us to connect ourselves to one another and to appeal to one another as fellow beings with the capacity for moral choice. Mil Zainendo, we are all here. Thank you. Yeah, your uh, slide, uh, German army enters Lithuania, that was taken in 1940. The picture was taken in 1940, not 41. <clears throat> it's not the German army entering into Lithuania. It's the Lithuanian <laughs> army entering into the Vilnius territory, which was returned to the Lithuanians after the, the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty. I stand corrected. Thank you. General in the middle is the Cisrashnikis. Uh-huh. General off to the side is General Lithgowskis. Thank you. And I can write that for you if you like. Okay, thank you. Also, um, also, I would suggest that you um, research because, from what I understand, Hitler was going to invade Russia on June 14. June 14 is when the Russians began taking people from the Baltic countries to Siberia. Mm -hmm. So it's only eight days later that he actually does invade Russia. Mm -hmm. And I think a valuable area of research would be what was the Jewish interaction with or input into this um, 
transportation to Siberia, and coupled with that, supposing Hitler had invaded on the 14th, just as the Russians were rounding people up, would you have that Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust? Along similar lines, uh, anti-Semitism should be researched in Russia in the 1800s, mm-hmm. Poland, especially the Catholic Church, Ukraine, Lithuania. And where does Lithuania really fit into this picture of anti-Semitism, number of pogroms, if any, in Lithuania? Mm-hmm. Where uh, are there examples of anti-Semitism between 1918 and 1940? Mm-hmm. I, think, I think these are much more valuable areas of research uh, than making a blanket statement that uh, you know, there's anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Because what the, just because you kill a robber doesn't mean you're a racist. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to look at the information. And, and you know, curiously, where does Hitler get his information to delay his invasion by eight days? This is really, really curious, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. All interesting things that some of them have been researched, others need to be researched more. Agreed. Thank you. Taping this, so. Uh, what is the religion currently in uh, Lithuania? The vast majority of Lithuanians today are Catholic and have been for many years. And what's the Jewish community? The Jewish community, there are 2,000 Jews in Vilnius and a total of about 4,500 Jews throughout the country. And are they Orthodox? Are they Orthodox? No, a few are. Uh, most are not. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was quite an interesting presentation. I wanted to just make a comment about those two museums. The Jewish Museum, um, and I, I was in Lithuania a few years ago, four or five Um, is a fairly sad little museum. The the museum that you referred to as the KGB museum, the museum that's in the old KGB headquarters, is a very fancy, you know, modern museum, but it is not called the KGB museum. It's called the Genocide Museum, and the genocide that is presented in that museum is how the Soviets persecuted the Lithuanians. It doesn't, it barely touches what happened to Jews. Jews are incidental, even though the majority of these Lithuanians that were, quote, persecuted were not killed compared to the numbers of Jews that were killed. That is the story, and that is the story that the Lithuanian government of today is presenting as it disconnects itself from the Soviet past and looks at the Soviets as the real enemies of the Lithuanians during all these years. And this other story of what the Nazis did to the Jews is just, you know, a minor bleep. Yeah, um, that museum, which is called the Museum of Genocide Victims, which is housed in the former KGB building, which had also been used as the Gestapo 
headquarters. Um, that's been a real flashpoint um, internationally, actually. Um, there are many people who find that very offensive. They look at this museum and they think, what are they talking about? There's no mention of the, the Holocaust. Since you were there, a room has been, you know, a new exhibit has been put in that does uh, talk about the Holocaust. But it, I think it's a very good example of the tangle of uh, very diverse and disparate senses of history in this country, which poses an incredible problem for how to remember the past and how to move forward from it. Um, I have a friend who's a, a Lithuanian-American historian who's done a lot of work um, about the Holocaust and has been very influential in helping Lithuanians to face the facts of the Holocaust. He said that he had an uncle who used to sit him down on his knee and say, you know, after the war, all hell broke loose. And he told me that story, and I thought, that is so opposite to what I think. You know, for the Jewish remembrance of this time is that the Holocaust was uniquely terrible in human history. It couldn't get any worse. It was the thing we need to be thinking about as a, an example of atrocity of humankind. Um, and yet, here was somebody who thought it got worse after that. So, um, th you know, this is one of the challenges facing this country, and it's facing other countries as well. Rwanda is an excellent example of where people went head to head, and the enemies of one side are the heroes of another side. And what do you do when the patriots, the, the martyrs, the most revered leaders of one side are the murderers, the, you know, creators of a bloodbath on the other side. So that's a tough situation. Thank you for your comment about that. Other comments? Yeah, I just had a general comment. Um, what would you recommend if someone wanted to research their family that they have no uncle like you had or you just know that they're from Lithuania? That's it. That's all you know. So how would you, is there like a, like a research center where they have all the names and all that stuff? or um, this I could talk for six hours about this question. I will not. Um, there are Jewish genealogists who are, it's a, like a huge movement in America. And um, one thing you could do is go to my website, and there's um, a page that I'm about to put on there that tells you how to get started with um, your researching your family past. Um, probably the first thing to do would be to find one of your ancestors and figure out where the, what ship they came on. And on that ship manifest, it'll say what village or town or city they came from. And that would be your starting point. There are people, there are archives in Lithuania you can look at. Many of them are online here in the United States. So you could spend the rest of your life looking into that. I might add that uh, it's always good to start at the public at the library public for your library. genealogy yes. search. I'm not sure there's an easy answer to this question, but I'll try it. Beginning in sometime in the 1880s, whole populations of cities came from Lithuania into the eastern seaboard, Baltimore being one of them, one of the cities. What accounted for that sudden uh, uh, migration? What accounted for that in Lithuania? What was going on? 
Well, um, some of this has to do with the history of czars. And czars, there were periods of relative um, friendliness toward Jews, and then there were periods of crackdowns on Jews. So that was one half of it. Lithuania at the time was part of Russia. Um, another thing is that um, that was the period of a real industrial boom time in the United States, and employers were hungry for people. There was a huge out-migration from all over Europe at that time. There were jobs galore, and uh, if you look, I mean, many of the, the cities we love, they they really rose to their, their glory at that time, and, and the architecture is all from that time, and um, so I think it was both sides of the ocean. That's what was going on there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, isn't it true that uh, there were approximately 6 million Jews murdered in cold blood and also approximately 3 million Gentiles murdered in cold blood because they went against him, against Hitler? 3 million. At least 3 million non-Jews lost their lives in that time in history. This book that I made reference to, Bloodlands, is a horrifying account of how uh, the Hitler regime and the Stalin policies kind of interacted and interwove to create a really kind of unbelievable turning of man against man. Um, so yes, many other people did die as well. But I think in no case was a people, or maybe in the case of um, the Roma, the gypsies, a, a, a tribe, a people, a folk, um, in no other case were people targeted simply because of their belonging to that um, race, and you know every single man, woman, and child was an equal target. So there are some things that are very distinctive about the Holocaust against the Jews, that, and we need to remember that. Uh, it's actually a comment rather than a question. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Um, first of all, um, with respect to what was occurring in the 1880 to 1914 period, you have a very rare period in which the uh, Russian Empire, which generally was hermetically sealed, permitted people to leave the country. And this was in reaction to assassination attempts on the czars. Secondly, the question was, what countries would take these impoverished people? The uh, peasants in Lithuania had only been freed by the czar in the 1860s. The Jews, for the most part, were impoverished, and um, they were suffering from overpopulation and an inability to move outside of the pale of settlement. Railroads were built, and the railroads were able to transpe transport people to the Baltic ports. Railroads were built through Lithuania and brought people to Libau and to Riga, and from there they could get passage to Bremen and to the United States. Um, after World War I, America felt that the demography had changed in the country and we closed immigration and so people had to go to other countries. And in the case of Jews, they went to the British Empire or to South Africa or Palestine. Secondly, um, with respect to um, what was occurring in Lithuania between the wars, there was a conscious decision made during uh, the First World War by Lithuanian nationalists that they should try to create a country in the area where there was a majority of Lithuanian-speaking people. So even though we think of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania as being a multinational area, in fact, the dominant language was actually a Belarusian language, 
it was a conscious decision made to have a, a compact area, which is roughly today where Lithuania is, the, the Republic of Lithuania. And um, after the Russians left and after the German army retreated at the end of World War I, um, the, um, there was an effort made by the uh, country to uh, improve the economic lot of Lithuanian people. And in this process, a lot of Jews were displaced economically. Many of them left. There were tensions during the 1930s throughout the world where there were nationalists. Uh, even in the United States, we had a Nazi movement in the United States. And in Lithuania, there was a group of, I believe, under Vald Morris and some others who were to the right of Smetana. And they became more nationalistic, let's say, focused, rather than, and, and maybe less favorable toward the Poles and other uh, minorities who were in the country. When the Soviets marched in in 1940, the Voldemaris folks were largely in Germany, and they conflated anti-communism with anti-Semitism. And so the groundwork was laid so that when the Germans were about to attack, that you had people who were ready, the white armband people, who were ready to rise up spontaneously throughout the country to attack. Uh, the other thing I want to mention was about Jewish genealogy. Um, the, um, <clears throat> the records of Jews who were living in Russia during their, uh, living in the Russian Empire in Lithuania and, and before were all preserved all during the 20th century. The Lithuanians did a wonderful job of preserving this, kept it away from the Soviets and whatever. And when Lithuania became independent again in 1991, this, all of these records came forward, and they're being actively translated into English and put online. So researching family trees is easier than it's ever been before. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I, I urge you to talk with Phil Shapiro, who's done a just wonderful job of connecting American Jews with Lithuania. Okay, let's make this the last question. I don't actually have a question, but I have a statement. Um, in the Baltimore Sun, I guess it was quite a few years ago, they had an article, it was an entire page, if not more, that um, in the 1880s with all the programs in Russia and the Jews that were being um, killed and the villages that were being burned, the Argentinian government all actually came over to recruit Jews to invite them to settle in Argentina with a promise of giving them land to settle their... Um, that's why the population is so large. It's not because of um, the Jews that escaped before and then after the Holocaust. It's quite... Frankly, it's because of um, the recruitment during the 1880s that really encouraged the population to grow. Okay, thank you. Thank, quite you. An thank you, Ellen, so much. Let's all give her a big round of applause. <laughs>